0: Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers
1: online and open the blast oh, sheet. Bring us in closer.
0: Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on Sublight Drive.
1: Extreme magnification. Aye,
0: sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. Experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance from.
1: This is it, ladies and gentlemen,
0: the edge of time and space, where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the Event Horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the event horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow.
2: And I am your other host, Susan Fox.
0: And with us is a remarkable man with a very long history in film and science fiction fiction fantasy-type roles. Uh, it's Mark Ryan. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello. How is everybody? Hello, Jane. Hello, everybody out there in sci-fi land. How are you all?
2: Oh, very well, indeed. Oh, my sword-swinging heartthrob, Mazir. Ah. Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I still hold the record with killing most people of, uh, in, fam- of in a family-viewing show in an hour. Nice! Two
2: <laughs> okay, so was That's it your... So so settle this for me. Was it your idea to make, you know, to give the, the ethnic twist on, on the random merry man with the sword or, you know, because um, I, had, I had never saw a Saracen or Arabic merry man in, in a uh, Robin Hood production before you
1: well it's a well known story but I'll reiterate it and just compress it down a bit because you know uh, the, the Robin and Sherwood fans know this but maybe there's other people out there that don't um, what happened was the original name of the character I was asked to play was Edmund the Archer <laughs> and the first director uh, uh, for the first six Robin and Sherwood was Ian Sharp and I was doing a show in the West End uh, called Evita. I was playing Shea Guevara. Mm-hmm. I originally played Magaldi. then I played Shea Guevara. I think I'm the only person that Al Prince allowed to go from one person to another character in the same show. I literally was Magaldi one week and I was Shea Guevara the next. And I was sent over to New York to study Manti Patinkin's uh, Shea Guevara in the Broadway production and steal it and bring it back to London. So that's what I did. And um, uh, a pal of mine, Louis Collins, uh, who I'd known for years actually, but he he brought Ian Sharp because we were working on a film called Who Dares Wins, and Ian saw me play uh, Shay, and I ended up doing that film. Who Dares Wins uh, in America it was known as The Final Option about the Iranian Embassy Siege.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So. When it came to casting Robin of Sherwood, which I'd already chatted with Ian about, to be honest with you, and, and he'd asked me if I'd be interested in doing something uh, in the show. And I said, Well, you, where are you filming? And he said, Well, Bamber Castle and, and all these different places at the coast. I said, Oh, I just want to go back to Bamber Castle and, and Annick Castle and all that kind of stuff. So they offered me this part of, of um, Edmund the Archer, and he didn't speak. There was no dialogue. It was literally he was an archer who was in the archery competition on the first day of shooting because I did all the training with the lads because you do like a couple of weeks of horse riding and archery and we did sword fighting and everything um, uh, uh, Ian came to me as I was literally stood with the stunt coordinator Terry Walsh and he said um, how do you feel about this 2 rounded sword fight thing and I said Um not a problem, I'll be able to handle it because I'd actually studied some of that, a uh, Japanese technique um, using two swords. So uh, a man called Michael J. And I said, Yeah, no problem. He said, How long have I got? He said, oh, About 10 minutes. Woo-hoo! And I said, Well, <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, No, no, you've got a couple of weeks. So go and practice with Michael and see what you can work out with Terry. And he said, Oh, by the way, you're no longer Edmund the Archer, you're Nazir the Saracen because you've been brought back from the Crusades by the Baron de Bellin, and you're his like Hitman slash Heavy and all that Archer sort of character. So uh, Edmund became uh, Nazi the Saracen and um, they wrote it into the first couple of episodes and at the end of the first episodes I was supposed to get killed and um, they decided not to kill me off and the producer uh, Paul Nyga, rest his soul, came to me and said so everybody seems to like you, you get on well with everybody, we, we love what you're doing on screen, would you like to stay on uh, in the show? And I said, sure, sure, absolutely, I'd love it. I, and I, even I didn't know how they would possibly, possibly bring this character into the show. Um, I got a phone call from the writer who later became a very close and dear friend, Richard Kip Carpenter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And trust me, this would not happen now. He rang me up and he said, So Mark, it looks like we've got you for the show. Um, I just want to let you know that I've written nothing for you because we we didn't know we were going to add you in. But it adds a lot of value to the show. He said, "Um, Is there anything specifically? He said, Because, as I say, there's no dialogue. I didn't write anything for the first three or four episodes. You you don't say anything. And I said, Kit, I don't need to say anything i go by the clint eastwood school of acting if i can do away with the dialogue and do it with action i'd rather do it that way so give me the archery the sword fighting the knife throwing the tracking all of that stuff give me all of the visual stuff i will make that speak i will make that talk on screen and he said great he said "Any any other things you can think of? i said well I'd actually just finished reading all three volumes of Sir Stephen Runciman's history of the Crusades Mm. and there's a very interesting relationship between the cult of the assassins the old man of the mountain and the Knights Templar they actually had a historic relationship trading scientific knowledge medical knowledge you know philosophical knowledge all kinds of stuff I said so the Knights Templar and the Saracens sometimes work together and then they sometimes were deadly enemies, but they both did, you know, they were both basic cult-like organizations. But they, they worked together sometimes, and other times they were, you know, at each other's throats. But there was this very strange relationship between the two groups. And uh, he said, oh, great, that's fantastic background. We'll write it into the show. <laughs> and so that's ex- that's how it came about. And trust me, very few writers nowadays are ever going to call up an actor and say, have you got any ideas?
2: <laughs> yeah, um, that's for sure. And...
1: That's and it just wouldn't happen, and uh, that's how the character was evolved. Uh, Kip wrote that kind of thing into the scripts, the directors even gave me that kind of stuff to do, and that's how the character was developed.
0: Wow! So, and there's been uh, the Saracen in every production of Robin Hood since,
2: and we can thank uh, Richard Kip Carpenter for that
1: yes indeed yeah yeah it wasn't in the original legend but however cause it's funny because I've just been asked this um, where I come from in Yorkshire I was born in Doncaster which mm-hmm. is south of York and around the city of York at that time there were nine nine Templar preceptories because the money was kept in york that's why william wallace went to york was to to sack york was to steal the gold from uh, york from where the money was kept where the, where the uh, chancellor was kept so around there was nine te- temporal preceptories so i grew up with this in the middle of all this Norman history but, but even Celtic history going back to the Brigantian Celts and the tribes of the Celts so I, I grew up with this not just with Robin Hood I played in Sherwood Forest as a child I hid in the, the Major Oak in Sherwood Forest what's left of me it's now called Clumber Park so this was our and, and so did my family I got photographs of my mother with my grandmother going back three generations all stood around the Major Oak in Sherwood Forest so it was something that I just absorbed you know from being a child all of this mystical magical strangeness that is is yorkshire and um, was was part of our growing up wow. and there were in fact entire um groups uh some are called the baileys i believe that there were villages where um knights returning from the crusades to deposit their their riches in york brought back the entire you know families of of um Uh, followers and and servants and and warriors and guardians and came back with them from the Holy Land and they set up their own little villages and lived in and around Yorkshire
0: Wow, so So you really grew up with it, I mean it's nobody, not that many people could be so well qualified to play a role in Robin Hood
1: it was so it was so bizarre, and obviously we are still friends to this day. I speak to Clive and uh, and Ray and uh, and Jason, who's now in the Bahamas. But uh, you know, I saw Michael a little while ago um, at a convention in the UK. But we are all still brothers to this day.
2: Well, of course you are. Of course you are.
1: It was such an experience. Uh,
0: the Robin Hood TV series was very early on in your career, 1984 to 1986 and uh you were in 24 episodes of that
1: uh, uh yeah we did three years yeah we did i think it was we did six the first year seven we should have done 13 13 and 13 but in those days television were, they were very uh, timid t- 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 about you know spending money on because these shows were expensive for the uk oh yeah. Robin and Sherwood, Horses, stuntmen, builds—you know—all kinds of stuff. Sets—they were expensive. So they did six the first year, seven the next year to make thirteen, and then we did thirteen the following year. But we should have done thirteen, thirteen, and thirteen is what should have been.
2: Well, we thought so, but you know, that was that was British television at the time.
1: So your first
0: pretty- your first film role was uh, the final option in 1982. You played the role of Mac, and before that, I mean, you. How did you get into acting in the first place?
1: Well, um... I started as in, in the music business. I was a singer. I was working working men's clubs. My dad was a singer. He was a band singer, so he was singing with the you know the bands from you know he was in the RAF. So during the war and and after the war he was singing you know crooning and that kind of thing. And I was very musical and I was doing musical things at school. You know we did um, all the Gilbert and Sullivan and Oliver and all that kind of thing. We did musicals like that at school, and you know I'd, I'd fallen into singing at school and then I became a professional and was driving up and down um, uh, UK in my car with my sound system and costumes in my back of my car. <laughs> um, we're, a- literally working the working, working men's clubs from Orken Wraith outside of uh, Glasgow to to Swansea in Wales and down to Bournemouth and just working whatever gig came up um, musically. That's how it started. And from there... I ended up doing bits of walk on and, and um, extra work at both Granada TV. It's where I first met Lou Collins, actually, he was at Granada. Mm-hmm. He was doing a show called The Cuckoo Waltz. And I did Coronation Street um, and Emmerdale Farm as an extra, and all the usual shows that they did from there, you know, Crown Court, with, which actually was the foundation of me understanding how a set works. Mm-hmm. how a set works and who's in charge who's the producer who's the director who's the first assistant what's their role second assistant all that kind of stuff and so that was really my understanding of, of the set and um that's how it started and eventually i got sometimes you get picked out as an extra to do extra things and that's that's how it started it's
0: oh it's a whole different world i mean um uh The difference between film and theater. Uh, uh, With theater, everything happens in real time, and with film, everything happens by one person doing something while everybody else waits. And (laughs)
1: Uh, if you, if we've got time, I'll tell you a little story about uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins. Oh, we do. We have time. Absolutely, we have time. (laughs) i was doing uh i was playing shay in evita we, we we talked about this on the last transformers we did because we were uh, filming in um Annick castle and bamber castle and so i'm walking around there in a bit of a daze looking at the walls thinking about how we shot the archery contest in the in the curtain um, the walls, the walls <laughs> of them, uh, in bamber castle and shooting that that scene there and as i'm looking up was i literally walk into Anthony Hopkins, Oops. Oh, Sir Anthony Hopkins. So we just, oh, Sir Anthony. So we just started chatting, and um, about the castle. He said, "If these walls could talk." I said, "He said I've always wanted to work here." And I said, "I worked here on a show called Robin Show. We just good chatting like that. I said, "So I, I, I feel it. You know what I mean? You feel it. You feel the history in the walls. It's, it's interesting." He said, "He looked at me and he went we 'We've met before, haven't we?'" I said, we have. I said, in 1981, probably, I stopped you in the street, tapped you on the shoulder, and I, I actually walked past him, and I recognized who he was, obviously, did a U-turn, tapped him on the shoulder, said, excuse me, I said, you, you don't know me from Adam, I'm doing a show around the corner, I said, I just want to tell you, I study what you do. You are the best screen actor of, of in Britain of your generation without doubt and i study what you do whether it's magic The lion in winter the bridge too far i said i study that your technique what and watch your eyes So said you want do that so we got talking and he said so what are you doing around the corner i said i'm playing shape and he's we talked about the difference between stage acting and screen acting and he gave me some advice but well, basically what he said was see Stage acting is about literally gathering the collective subconscious of an audience, visualizing, getting hold of it, and pulling it onto the stage, and then literally maneuvering it around the stage so it follows you around the stage, and you that what you're doing stays the focus of what that collective consciousness is, is observing. And it's like an almost unspoken communication which is true even david essex said the same thing to me he said whereas um, and you're you're kind of projecting yourself out but you're also bringing that collective subconscious onto the stage and creating that reality he said where screen actually said this, the camera looks right into your soul so you can't pretend You have to mean what you're saying because the camera looks into your eyes and knows whether you're telling the truth or not. And he said, um, the best thing to do, the best advice I could give you is let the audience decide on screen. He said, let them decide whether they trust you, they like you, they're interested in what you're doing. Let the audience come to you. He said, just say the truth and let them decide. He said, when we did Lion in Winter, which was his first film, um, mm-hmm. uh, Catherine Hepburn said to him, darling you've got such a strong face, you don't need to act, don't act just say the lines let me do the acting, I'll do the acting you, 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 you just say the words, he said you don't need to do anything, just be there, let your face tell the story, so um, that was a piece of advice that literally changed my career because the next the obviously the bit job I got next was Who Days Wins where I had this scene with Judy Davis oh, and yeah. um it's been remarked on in fact the producer came up and remarked, he said, What's it feel like to steal a scene from Judy Davis? And I said, I don't I didn't understand what he was saying. He said, What do you mean? Is that a bad thing? would did I do something wrong? He said, No. He said, We're all watching you. We're all watching you, we're not looking at Judy Davis. I said, But why? He said, Because didn't you realise what you did? I said, No. He said, You don't blink. You're so focused on her face, on her eyes. You didn't blink for almost three minutes. Oh, my when gosh. said, going, when is he going to blink? <laughs> 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 and stillness on screen uh, works.
0: Wow. Well, that's a new one. I never thought I'd heard Mark Ryan do an, imita- an imitation of... A-
2: Catherine Hepburn.
0: Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn and a recognizable no, an
2: one. Of Anthony Hopkins.
1: Hopkins, dude. Oh, there you go. Doing, See, yeah. Yeah. And
2: there's, there's always a Hopkins, you know, a certain right. level of like <laughs> filtering
1: who is also actually a brilliant mimic in his own right. He does people as well. You I know, you usually Olivia. He's very good at, uh, at mimicking people. So.
0: Well, I think that's probably the high point of the our series. <laughs>
1: It was Um, fantastic to be uh, on the set with him and he is such a generous, warm, kind, patient man as well as being a genius uh, on the screen. He's also a fine human being and... um, Again, if you're any Transformers fans there, I'll just bring this one up because it's absolutely true. I told Michael this uh, uh, as well. It was one morning because we used to go, Mark, dear boy, come here. Welsh, Welsh tigers together, come here. And he would he would hug me and he's like a bear. I'm not being funny. He's solid. He's like, duck like a little bear. And um, uh, so we were chatting one morning. He said, How many of these have you done? I said, This is my fifth with <laughs> Michael. He said, I have never seen any director do what Michael Bay can do. He said, I've worked with a few directors. I said, I know you have. He said, um, I've never worked with a director that can pick up any camera, any lighting, any he knows about special effects, he knows about CGI. He knows literally every piece of equipment on this set. He could do all the jobs on a set. Anytime said, I've never seen anybody do what Michael can do. It's quite extraordinary. I said he he is a genius I mean he's he's and not only that it's his it's his life This is this is his environment. He comes alive in this in this environment So you know that was high praise indeed from somebody that was well respected. He thought Michael was a genius, and he said so Wow
2: takes a certain man to do that
1: Uh, Yeah so how did you fall
0: into the, uh, you'd done a lot of Transformers work, mostly games. Ah, that but-
2: Transformer, the first Transformer movie drove me nuts because, oh, we went to see, oh, Mark Ryan's going to do a voice in this, da 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 and we were watching and Bumblebee comes on and Bumblebee's entire dialogue is voice cuts from other sources. We're going, where's Mark? And <laughs> well- the film he turns up.
1: Okay. it's well, all right. I'll explain it because it, it takes a bit of explaining. I I was hired. I wasn't just Mumblebee. I'm on the set. All, I've been on the set of all five films. And so when Why? the voice is talking on the set, and well, I think Michael learned the lesson from the first of the new Star Wars films where they try to have everything done on green screen and the actors are just, you know, doing their dialogue without anybody being there and so you can see that there's a certain woodenness to it um, mm. and I think um he got advice from Steven Spielberg uh, when they did uh, Jurassic Park, the first Jurassic Park that they had people actually on the set so I'm on the set and and I'm doing all of the robots I've been everybody, I've been Optimus Prime transform and roll out <laughs> I've been everybody on the set. You've been Jet um, Scream all of them. Jetfire was. I was locked down. I was everybody on the set. Whenever there was a robot talking, I did it and um the reason they did that was because particularly Shire, liked to add lit and change the dialogue hmm. so you, you can't just record it and play it, and he does his dialogue to a recording although they did use that occasionally now and again the use of Peters um, recorded dialogue but it worked better um, when there's a human being at the other end of it because I could time my dialogue um, with what the actors doing and not only that the um, uh, the actual movements of the cameras, I understood because I'd learned that as well from being a fight director. like I'm on, working on first night and mm-hmm. King Arthur to time the film camera movements and, and lighting movements and stuff. So I was able to not only take in what the actor is doing and deliver the dialogue to them so they can respond to it. I could also wait till the camera was in the right position or steady. And they're in the right close of really to deliver the line. And, um, that happened a lot and Michael and I got on very well because he understood that I understood what he was doing and very early on in fact the first film that we're talking about uh, when the robots are in the um, uh, wiki back garden (laughs) That scene was the first scene that I shot with Michael, and he showed me the animatics. And the animatics are basically just line drawings of what the robots are doing, uh, but obviously the, the actual drawings aren't there. They've not been fully rendered. They're just like line drawings. So he said, "Come here, t- look, take a look at this." So um, uh, I went and looked at the the, the 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 rough animatics, and and I started to laugh. And he looked at me and went, "Can you see that? Do you understand what that is?" I said, "Yeah, you've got." five giant alien robots hiding underneath somebody's house and in their carport i said no it's funny and he looked at me and he nodded and he understood that i understood what he was doing and he went great let's go and that's how it started and that was 10 years of my life literally and five films Wow. And so I was on the set uh, of all of them, doing dialogue with everybody from Buzz Aldrin uh, to John Turturro to Anthony Hopkins to everybody that was in any one of those films. Where um, uh, when they Stanley Tucci, whenever anybody was doing dialogue, they did it with me. Wow!
0: <laughs> so fantastic. that was fantastic. Let's see the uh, Transformers. Uh, wow, well, you've been in. All of them,
2: them. (laughs) pretty much
0: all of them. Uh, Lots of video games as well.
1: Uh, Yeah, I did the video games as well. But honestly, being on the set is the most Uh to me is the most rewarding and exciting. And it's funny because Peter did come down once onto the set. He was we were filming um, down uh, in Long Beach, and and Peter dropped in just to be on the set to walk around. He was sitting next to me, and he looked at me and he said, "Um, "How do you know what the hell is going on?" and I said I cheat because I'm wired up for sound I, I literally had two mic packs and a walking microphone and earphones on and everything I'm wired so I know what everybody's doing and where they're going and where I'm supposed to be and um, he said I couldn't do this he said I couldn't do what you're doing I have no idea how you track where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be saying I said it's you know it's like anything you just get, get used to it but I come in prepared you know and that, that was Michael's I have to say it was Michael's thing you bring your A-game you know, don't come unprepared. You've got to bring your A game and ready to rock and roll. Because he moves, he moves fast, and a lot of actors get confused because it's moving so quickly uh, that he likes to keep the driving the set. He likes to make his days. You know,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, because uh, you slip on the days, and uh, uh, you know, even a little bit, and it piles up because it, it'll keep happening.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Then what we would do—I mean, this is just so the pro- you understand the process—sometimes, like with lockdown, for instance, I'd—I'd literally—I was no idea what I was going to do for that character. I had to voice it that night, the first time he turns up and walks onto the set, and, and they've just um, uh, blown up uh, uh, um, one of the one of the other transformers, and and, and I'm there, and I had no idea what I was going to do. And funnily enough, there was an advert for Jaguar cars mm. which was going the rounds here in the states and it was why do all the bad guys in films have British accents is it a certain amount of style a certain amount of detachment and I was literally thinking okay so it needs to be a cross between um Anton Sugar from No Country for Old Men <laughs> and and he needs to be also a Hannibal Lecter so I placed this voice in my head. I was all wired up for sound, and I, and I was very quiet on the set, and the guys just put up the big speakers and played this uh, this voice, but you know, it almost as quiet as that. You humans, always making a mess, and then I have to clean it up. Autobots, Decepticons, always fighting. And I did it th- that quiet, but through the huge speakers that we had on the set and it sounded like the voice of God
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: very Michael, very
2: irritated God
1: Oh. Michael just turned to me and, he, I, and smiled and so I knew that was going to be how we would develop the character and towards the end of it again that's one of the most uh, I've been involved with developing the character on the set for Transformers although Jetfire was also um, one that I was you know, involved with developing the character in terms of its vocal you know what, what I was doing. In fact, Michael did say to me at one point. He said, um, "Who is that? Who is whose voice are you doing for jet I went, "My mate Ray Winston. I'm doing Ray. May Mondo Ray Mondo Winston. You know." said, "I'm doing the Ray Winston." And he went, is, "I said. He said, I know I recognise it, but I don't know." I said, "Yeah, you know Ray. Yeah, Ray Markey, well, Markey." To behold the glory of jet fire, a jetfire, a mercenary Dunebringer, you know, and um, that's how it comes together. Then we go into the studio afterwards. The film is being assembled, and the um, the special effects are being rendered for the for, and the CGI for the robots. And we'll go in and do line after line after line, different try different lines, different deliveries, uh, until he's happy with you know the way that the voice sits. In the soundscape and uh, the character of the robot comes to life and with Bumblebee we I mean it, I didn't even know that they were going to use those lines I'd done Bumblebee on the set and I was physically there as Bumblebee doing the dialogue I was physically there as all of them jazz and everybody um, but I, it, I didn't know he was going to use it like that or how they were going to develop the character I just threw these lines Michael said he just say this so I said it you know um I didn't know where it was going to be used so, you know, permission to speak sir, I wish to stay with the boy and and he looked and went, okay and they threw it into the film Wow
0: <laughs> We are just, uh, we're over here on our side of the uh, mixer just dancing in our seats listening to you <laughs> describe this because it's so much fun uh, Wait it's... till
2: your son hears this, my dear oh, <laughs> He's gonna, oh, He boy. is going to go
0: spare Oh boy
1: I've been very fortunate, and and I say that in all sincerity. I've been incredibly fortunate, you know, whether it's Evita or Robin Sherwood or Transformers, Black Sales, whether it's any of the things I've been involved with. I got to play at all of these things as a grown up, you know, mm-hmm. my my inner child has been a pirate, an alien robot, a merry man, you know, how lucky. So when I go and do fan conventions and stuff like that, people say to me, you have no problem talking to people about this and chatting away. I get told off, in fact, to spend too much time talking to people. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, well, the say, handlers no, because... don't like it,
0: you know, because you're, you're not making the tables flow.
1: Well, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> that's an issue. Uh, I like the conventions and I enjoy talking to people. and well, yeah, and it's the whole point of, of, of being that one. It's all about and the pe- people. People gave me their time. You know, people like Anthony Hopkins gave me his time free, standing in a wet, rainy street in Soho. And the weird thing about that was, as he's talking to me, he said, he said, okay, he said, wait a minute, he said... Was it The Strand or was it in Soho? I said it, was, um, I said it was Soho. He said, was it Wardour Street or was it Old Compton Street? I said it was Wardour Street. He said, I remember. He said, I never forget a place and I never forget a face. He said, I looked at you and I was like, I know this person from somewhere. How do I know this person? And I told him what he told me. And he went, that's what I would have told you. That's exactly what I would have said to you. So he's got a remarkable memory. And and I kept calling him Sir Tony, because I didn't know what else to say. He said, no, no, Tony, Tony. In fact, on my Facebook page, there's a little video that we did because uh, he insisted that not that we have a photograph together, but we actually made a little video together. So if you people want to go and see the video of me and Anthony Hopkins on the set together, it's, it's there. Welsh warriors from a strange land called Wales. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> save, anyway.
2: Save the whales.
1: <laughs> save the Wales.
2: So what is next it's... for Mark Ryan?
1: Well, there's a lot of stuff floating about at the moment. Um, uh, I'm finishing up writing a book with Johnny Matthews for um, Sterling Publishing in New York called the Sherwood Oracle. And I've written, this will be my fourth book about the symbolism in myths and legends. I, I wrote Greenwood Tarot in the 90s. That's now a kind of a cult Um Tarot deck and chains. I, I guess. The
2: <laughs> I have got a copy I do.
1: Okay. Well, hang on to it because you know there's some online now about twenty five hundred, three thousand dollars a deck. You Holy can't. Cow. I, I am planning to redo. I'm. Uh, I've, I've had all kinds of. <sighs> hate mail about it but I'm going to do it because um, uh, everybody thinks that somehow I have a palette of these things hidden away somewhere and every now and again I let one go and it sells for like three grand, four grand a pop Um, but I'm going to do a limited edition version, Um, I have permission to do it, I've always had permission to do it and um, we're going to do a limited version uh, uh, just so it's affordable for people because it was the first deck ever totally based on the wheel of the year system and, and not Kabbalah Mm. Uh, because I don't, I don't speak Kabbalah. So um, Kabbalah to me was 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 very difficult to access. Whereas the wheel of the year, the European wheel of the year. Midwinter solstice, summer, uh, summer solstice, and the, the totem animals about the eight spoke wheel—that was understandable to me. So, the, we first laid that deck out that you have uh, using a rider weight deck on my carpet in Streatham in South London, <laughs> and we laid it out the way that you see it on that piece of paper that's in the book, which Jessica Potter and I mm-hmm. um, uh, laid it out on the carpet uh, and, and Streatham, and that's how we started to work and develop the system. And um, again, unusually, I had a lot of input into the art, I had a lot of input into the system uh, and the background of it. And we used to go to um, these places that you see, like Wayland Smith and various, and um, West Kennet Long Barrow and all these kind of places, and do these meditations. And we would come up with imagery, which was then added into the actual cards and i described what i'd seen and she would paint it or whatever we'd, we did and mm. there was a couple of times there was a couple of cards that the publisher wasn't happy with so we had to go back in and sometimes even drew little sketches of going this is what i actually saw this is what i think it should look like and then jessica drew it from there so um, that's how it was uh, developed and again it became a, a cult still is a cult there. and then Wildwood Tarot obviously followed on and then Wild Magic the book Wild Magic the workbook and now we're doing the um, Sherwood Oracle which is an Oracle system an system as opposed to a a tarot system but it's based on the same frequency if you like of, of our relationship to very much like Robin and Sherwood uh, the Wildwood and the denizens of the forest. So it's very much like that. That's right. what we. That's one of the publishing things I'm working on. We're working on the next uh, chapter in the Pilgrim Saga with Mike Grill. Um, because of the sudden upsurge of interest in things like Skinwalker Ranch and obviously the UAP uh, issue, which we can go into a bit if you like. Um, uh, uh, there's been a lot of interest in the history. This, because I'm probably one of the few people that's had one foot in the intelligence world and another foot in the world of esoteric thinking. And um, uh, an unsung hero of the Second World War was a man called Colonel Kim Seymour, um, Panamina has got a book out about him at the moment but I've actually been to Kim Seymour's grave. Uh, Kim Seymour was one of the few people that was called on by Churchill to wage magical warfare on the SS, the German Nazi SS and that is all true, they did that they gathered the top magicians uh, from the UK um, wow. to wage psychic warfare uh, on, the, uh, on the leaders of the Nazi party and whether it was done as a, a misdirection to uh, spin the Nazis away from understanding that we were reading their radio traffic, which we were because at Bletchley Park they'd broken the Enigma codes, um, and they wanted to uh, point them in a different direction. So uh, they came up with the idea of let's not have the Germans work out that we're reading their coded traffic, let's make them think that we're reading their minds. <laughs> I love this is all this. true this I is history this. I'm, not, I'm not making this I up I love this uh, and so exactly there's a, a book if you're interested in called a bodyguard of lies By a man called Anthony Gabe Brown and it's 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 required reading for probably anybody entering into any intelligence um, uh, Apparatus or organization it's and I know this because they told me this uh, the People that work in other organizations not just in the u.s. But in, in other parts of the world They said we have to read that book. It's part of our Part of our required reading, and it comes from a Winston Churchill quote, and it is: "In war, the truth is so precious, she must always be accompanied by a bodyguard of lies." Ooh! Wow! And that is—it's you... so applicable. Uh, um, Brandon Fugel. If you know who Brandon Bugle is, who's been correspondent back and forth a bit. It was the first thing I said to him about Skinwalker Ranch. I said, you need to understand, you know, this is co- this is wrapped in a bodyguard of lies. The truth has not come out yet. It will... Um, even with the Pentagon releasing its, uh, its pictures of Tic Tacs and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's a lot of interest in this arena at the moment. Um, and I just happen to be one of the people that not only did a lot of research in it, but understands the mechanics of it. Gosh.
2: I, I, I expect to see more in about 20, 30 years. Once, you know, 100 years have passed.
1: I, I think you will know before then um okay. I, I think that that this is the beginning of a kind of what they call a limited hangout where the, they, they they show you this because I mean look the looking at some of the videos okay you're talking about what Lou alessandro and just I'll just add this caveat I understand why Lou Alessandro cannot tell you the whole truth and neither can Travis from skinwalker Ranch they can't tell you if they did, their their lives would literally be over in the sense that they'd have the IRS, they'd have, they're, they're literally, they'd be in serious, serious trouble. And I can tell you I know that because I had a very high security clearance. And I worked with people that had a high security clearance and one of them stepped over the line. Oops. And was in real trouble. I mean, serious trouble. So the reason they can't say what they know, and they do know more than what you're seeing. That I that I know because if I know, they know. Um, there's uh, a real reason, however, the why they will misdirect. And I don't say they're doing it on purpose because um, they probably don't know the whole story, but they've got slivers and bits of it. A bit like uh, Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar um, went into the whole thing about element one hundred and fifteen and stuff like that, which everybody said this is there is no element one hundred and fifteen. Well, guess what? There is. We now know there is an element one hundred and fifteen, moscovium or whatever it's called. That there's now on the periodic table. When he was talking about that, that was not on the periodic table. So um, there's a lot of this stuff that is still buried for real reasons I I, I not say I agree with all of them Um, but the logic of what we've just seen either is that aliens are visiting our planet with trans-dimensional craft that can fly in various media, including the water and the atmosphere and air without there being wings control services either that either they're aliens or we've developed a craft that can do that and that is why it's wrapped in a bodyguard of lies that we've created crap. now I was exposed to let's put it that way uh, when I was involved in the 90s stuff that was um, information about stuff that was already flying or was being tested not a million miles away from what we're looking at so um, whether you believe it's made out of um various (laughs) various <laughs> engineering feats of which there are patents online for which you can go and look publicly look at which have been developed over the last 30 or 40 years and we've done it where the original concepts came from is another discussion about where that information came from or um, they're coming from an interdi- interdimensional alien intelligence the zone is that or is that
2: well, wow. we know we're swimming in a world we are not allowed to know anything about and you know, either we can get you know, stress ourselves to death about it or we can just accept it.
1: Well <laughs> We'll never know and yeah.
2: okay, you know we'll find out there is when it is
1: there are real strategic reasons why there is secrecy around it, and I I don't want to go chasing down that rabbit hole but um, there are a lot for instance let me I'll just I've used this analogy recently talking to somebody else about another project where they wanted to know you know they want they're asking me questions which I'm saying some of this stuff I can't say you will get me next time I'm flying to the UK I'm going to get pulled over And somebody from the Ministry of Defence is going to go, come here, you, and um, that's that's going to be trouble. And and honestly, my uh, age and mileage, I don't want that. However, um, there's real strategic reasons why they want to keep that secret. And the best example I can give you is if in 1940 you went to somebody in Chicago and said, look, there's this tiny, tiny speck of matter (laughs) and we're going to split it. And if we split that tiny bit of matter that you can't see, you can't even see it with a microscope, right? If we split that tiny little piece of matter, it's going to cause a chain reaction which is going to evaporate a city. And somebody's going to go, you're out of your mind. Have you, what have you been smoking? Are you on whatever, you know? They're going to go, what are you talking about? I can't even see this piece of matter but you're going to split it. What are you going to split it with? What chain reaction? What are you talking about? That's where we are. So we're at a place now where the concepts themselves, the very concepts, are uh, protected with the highest classification, because we don't want to give away those ideas to what potentially could be adversaries around the world just the concept of what we're talking about so when people say recent events in the last two days the even the classification of what they're looking for is classified that's what they mean because the actual concept never let, let alone the actuality of what they're actually doing that's classified how you get there but just the idea itself you don't want that you know but they're doing what but you saw, you, know, you can look at the videos and go, "Well, it's either this or it's that." It's not, it's not a rocket science. So I believe it's well, it is rocket science, but just you know, yeah, you know, I, I get to what you're
0: saying. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, there aren't there aren't a lot of possibilities as to what it could be.
1: It's, what it could be. Yeah, yeah, and, but humans and, and,
2: can't even drive on the ground. I don't want to see them with transdimensional craft. They run into things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're
0: there you know, its like the, the you know packs. the the thing about the 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 21st century. It's the 21st century. Where's my rocket pack? Where's my flying car? Oh hell no! Oh hell no!
2: Well, <laughs> They'll be dropping yeah. their yeah. cars into my basil patch. No way.
1: Well, uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but um, a lot of the stuff that we are working our way through at the moment—I mean, Tesla already had. Um, a, a, an energy idea that was so revolutionary that, but as Edison said, if you can't put a meter on it, then we don't want it because we can't charge for it. So the, there is a, a, an element of of that, by, of profiteering, um, because if it's free and you could use it abundantly to power your jetpack or your car, um, that means they can't charge you for it. So um, there is an element of of that within some of these concepts without without doubt um, but again I understand why Lou Alessandro and people like that are being we have a saying in the UK economical with the truth because they, mm-hmm. they, they know much more than than they're saying and they know as I understand as well uh, if you say the wrong thing of, of something that you learned while you were signed up and while you were under the protection of that um, classification access to that information you will be in big trouble yeah
2: oh, we're not going to try and make you say anything it'll get you in trouble, you've got a family
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I, I write it in comic books you see, I wrote it in The Pilgrim and uh, I'm going to do it in the next version because it's its uh, a comic book, it's a graphic novel it's, it's not true <laughs> so uh that's one way of approaching it but don't think the governments of the world and particularly the british and the americans have not spent millions trying to understand the relationship between human consciousness and uh this science there is a whole field of science and consciousness absolutely um greer talks about it a bit stephen greer's talked about it um Very interesting I don't agree with everything that he says but um, he's kind of sort of on the right track and and this is it's an ancient idea and Kim Seymour was one of the people that broke that ground uh, using what he believed to be occult ideas to affect people's minds in the SS and it worked and that's where the whole concept of remote viewing it grew out of the science of that after the Second World War
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we have been speaking with actor, writer, producer, singer,
2: (laughs) uh, voice actor,
0: metaphysician, uh, uh, and expert on mythology, Mark Ryan. It is... (laughs) That is a long list. I've just got started. (laughs) (laughs) We should have you back again sometime and and pick up where you left off. No, is that... Yeah, this was oh, fun we this gonna gonna was fun at
1: least another couple of hours yeah I'm, I'm, you <laughs>
2: <know>. <laughs> anytime but you know promoting your next comic book whatever please come tell us about it
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're going to do that. Mike Grell is going to uh, is going to jump in. It's always Steve Scott who did the, some of the work on the last pilgrim, so we're going to work on that. And obviously, I've just been I've been approached to front the show about what we were just talking about, um, about the patents and about this mixture mm-hmm. of esoteric science and uh, stuff. We, we're I'm in discussions about that right now. Let's put it that way.
0: Well, that is awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Event Horizon here on Sci-Fi Radio. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And we've been oh. we've been waiting for this opportunity to speak with you for a very long time.
1: Thank you. Great fun. Uh, Any time when we come back, we will delve into things weird, strange, and uh, what's it, magic frigging science. I think that's what they call it. Mad frigging science. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: You have been listening to episode 245 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for Saturday, August 13th, 2022. Our guest this evening has been actor, writer, producer, voice artist, and myth and legend expert Mark Ryan, best known for his roles on the BBC production of Robin Hood as Nasir and Lockdown in the Transformers movies. This episode will air again at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and on our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-Fi.Radio is listener-supported Sci-Fi Geek Culture Radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy programming like what you just heard, we ask you to please visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and pledge 5 or $10 a month to help keep the station on the air. That's patreon.com slash sci-fi radio. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. The captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2022 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.